the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. Thinking about the discussion I'm going to have in a few moments with a guest on the passing of David McCullough, the great historian, a few thoughts, especially given our previous discussion earlier in the show with Stanley Kurtz on the role of the university and how political leaders can actually make a difference, influence the university. Let us take a step back and discuss the purpose of education, which I believe gets lost in a lot of these discussions. Many of you know I like to quote the 20th century professor of moral philosophy at Oxford, John Alexander Smith. He told his students the following in their, uh, for, on their first day of school. Gentlemen, you are now about to embark on a course of studies which will occupy you for two years. Together, they form a noble adventure. But I would like to remind you of an important point. Nothing that you will learn in the course of your studies will be of the slightest possible use to you in afterlife, save only this, that if you work hard and intelligently, you should be able to detect when a man is talking rot. And that, in my view, is the main, if not the sole, purpose of education. Close quote. To know when a man is talking rot. There's a lot of rot going around our education system in and about it. The problem is few seem able to or willing to see it, know of it, or do anything about it. Adam Carolla the other day put it that if you want to know what white racists used to stand for and what constituted the need for a civil rights movement, just look at what the respected or elite civil rights organizations today stand for and promote Segregated education? Yep. White racists supported that ardently. The 1950s and 1960s federal court system and civil rights movements eradicated that. Today, you get self-imposed segregated dorms, graduating ceremonies, and even study centers. If you're at ASU, you can't even allow white students into some of those study centers. If you're at NAU, as Stanley Kurtz pointed out, the school requires four, count them, four diversity courses for graduation, no matter your major, all of which must be grounded in, quote unquote, critical theory, which is the neo-Marxist system that produced critical race theory, critical legal theory, and still more entries in the grand campaign to, to neo-Marxitize pretty much everything. NAU brags that its unprecedented quadruple critical theory requirement rockets it to the quote-unquote forefront of higher education. Without doubt, we should award NAU a trophy for ideological corruption. General education, which once prepared students for responsible citizenship while imparting knowledge preparatory to advanced learning in various disciplines, is being transformed by NAU into a mandatory regimen of political propaganda that calls for treating students differently, based exclusively on race. If you supported Martin Luther King, you supported his views as he articulated them, for example, at Crozier 
at giving all children, primarily minority children, access to and instruction in the best minds in history, which emanated out of Western civilization. He put it this way, quote, not until 1948, when I entered Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania, did I begin a serious intellectual quest for a method to eliminate social evil. I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking such as it was, and while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from their study. I spent a great deal of time reading the works of those great social philosophers, close quote. Today, you major in any of those scholars' works, you will not find a tenure-track position open to you, as all education now is based on reinforcing group culture and eliminating any study of any person who comes from a race that is deemed to have members who were oppressors. So, Chinua Achibi is in, Rigoberto Menchu is in, Paulo Ferrer is in, Aristotle, Plato, and Locke are out. If you want to bring in the world's leading expert on diversity and overcoming racism in our culture and particularly our education system, you go to Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research and hire its director, Ibrahim Kendi, who will lecture to you as he writes in his most famous book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination, close quote. But if you're older than 50, you might read or hear that and think it sounds familiar. And then you will recall the famous words of one of the most famous racists in 20th century America, Alabama's Democratic Governor George Wallace, who in his inaugural address as governor shouted, quote, in the name of the greatest people that have ever trod the earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny. And I say segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, close quote. If you are a true student of that time period, you will know or remember that George Wallace said that in defiance of the enforcement of Brown versus Board of Education just a few years earlier, which banned segregation in our schools, including Alabama. That would be the case that made one lawyer named Thurgood Marshall very famous, as he, on behalf of the NAACP, argued that case to the Supreme Court in 1953. And in his legal brief to the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall wrote this, quote, Distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary, and so invidious that a state bound to guarantee the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them in any public sphere. Close quote. Today, of course, that language would be abhorred and rejected as racist if you asked Ibrahim Kendi or, for that matter, almost any diversity officer or professor of anything at almost any college or university in America. Education has a lot of purposes, it turns out. To part of this country, an increasingly large part, and perhaps constituting the majority of colleges and universities, education is, teaching is, meant as a revolutionary act. Paulo Ferrer's book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is the tome studied by most teachers in training today. Ferrer was a Marxist and saw all education as useful only if it categorized individual students or society into categories of oppressed 
and oppressor, which immediately categorized human beings into collectives, collectives of collective responsibility, where actors for good or evil were acting themselves as a result of the race or culture they were born into. Their race and culture determined not only their thinking, but their actions. And since... In the West, if there was racism or oppression, it was typically against minority populations committed, obviously, by members of the majority population. Thus, the responsibility and the liberation required group dynamics and group judgments. Race simply replaced class as the ground upon which one's birth demanded repudiation and revenge or superiority and vindication. This would have been as alien to Thurgood Marshall as it was to Martin Luther King. But if you quote them, you are told, as Maxine Waters once told Bill Bennett in a forum on this very thing, quit quoting dead saints when he quoted Martin Luther King, to which Bill responded, are there any other kind of saints? But consider, is it the quoting of those who no longer are alive that is the problem? If so, all education would just need to be what we call or might call contemporary, the study of only those who are alive. Nobody can actually believe that, can they? So it must be the exclusive quoting of people with the right ideas and thoughts, alive or dead. But that will, of course, also be a moving target. So if, for instance, you are a 60-year-old professor, let us say, and in the 1970s you were teaching Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King and seen as a progressive or liberal, and you gave the same lectures today you were giving then, you would be the target of some sanctioning committee for violating the strictures that elevate the oppressed or, at a minimum, violating the commitments to diversity, inclusion, and equity. I was rereading Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind recently and stumbled upon this section of his writing on culture. I loved it. And now I love sharing it with you, if I may, from Alan Bloom's book, quote, the new ethnicity or roots is just another manifestation of the concern with particularity, evidence not only of the real problems of community in modern mass societies, but also of the superficiality of the response to it, as well as the lack of awareness of the fundamental conflict between liberal society and culture. This attempt to preserve old cultures in the new world is superficial because it ignores the fact that real differences among people are based on real differences in fundamental beliefs about good and evil, about what is highest, about God. Differences of dress or food, and one might add race, are either of no interest or are secondary expressions of deeper beliefs. The ethnic differences we see in the United States, he continues, are but decaying reminiscences of old differences that caused our ancestors to kill one another. The animating principle, their soul, has disappeared from them. The ethnic festivals are just superficial displays of clothes, dances, and foods from the old country. One has to be quite ignorant of the splendid cultural past in order to be impressed or charmed by these insipid folkloric manifestations which by the way, unite the meanings of culture, people, and art. And the blessings given the whole notion of cultural diversity in the United States by the cultural movement has contributed to the intensification and legitimization of group politics, along with a corresponding decay of belief that individual rights enunciated in the Declaration of Independence are anything more than simply dated and dead rhetoric, close quote. 
We teach in America the awful history and legal case known as Dred Scott. Most people know of the Dred Scott decision where a racist majority of the Supreme Court declared that the black man has no rights, which the white man is bound to respect. For some reason, we don't teach that that opinion was not unanimous. Perhaps that would offend the narrative that everyone shared these views or that America was universally or systemically racist. There were, however, two important dissents in that case, though they're not taught. But that does indeed mean the court, and presumably also much of the country, was not unanimous in these views. One of the dissenting justices, Justice John McClain, delivered a dissent in that case that I wish were taught. For there he wrote, far from having no rights the white man must respect, quote, the black man bears the impress of his maker and is amenable to the laws of God and man, and he is destined to an endless existence, close quote. In other words, he, like all humans, have a soul, has a soul, and it does not depend on his race. It depends on him being a human being. Alan Bloom put it that fascination with one's students leads to an awareness of the various kinds of souls and their various capacities for truth and error, as well as learning. Such experience is a condition of investigating the question, what is man, in relation to his highest aspirations, as opposed to his low and common needs. A liberal education means precisely helping students to pose this question to themselves, to become aware that the answer is neither obvious nor simply unavailable, and that there is no serious life in which this question is not a continuous concern. Despite all the efforts to pervert it, the question that every young person asks, who am I, the powerful urge to follow the Delphi command, know thyself, which is born in each of us, means in the first place, what is man? And in our chronic lack of certainty, this comes down to knowing the alternative answers and thinking about them. Liberal education provides access to these alternatives, many of which go against the grain of our nature or our times. The liberally educated person is one who is able to resist the easy and preferred answers, not because he is obstinate, but because he knows others are worthy of consideration. Today, we go for the easy answers. White or Western equals bad. Non-white, non-Western equals good, and race and culture will determine the predicates. Peter Drucker, you know of him? He was a famous business and economics professor here who defected from Nazi Germany. He once put it about the school he first taught at, which was Frankfurt University in Germany. When the, Nazi, when the Nazis came to power, most of the professors there welcomed the injection of their race and group theories into the takeover of the school. The professors welcomed Nazi theory. Drucker said he knew at that point that within 48 hours he would have to leave Germany. And he did to come and teach in America. Today, Frankfurt's 1930s ethics have also been adopted here in America. Leo Strauss also fled Germany about the same time. <clears throat> Strauss would later write, quote, while abandoning the idea of natural right and through abandoning it, abandoning the idea of humanity, German thought created the historical sense that led to unqualified relativism. What was a tolerably accurate description of German thought then, Strauss wrote, would now appear to be true of Western thought in general. It would not be the first time that a nation defeated on the battlefield and annihilated as a political being 
would have deprived its conqueror of the most sublime fruit of victory by imposing on him the yoke of its own thought. Whatever might be true of the thought of the American people, American social science at any rate has adopted the very attitude towards natural right which a generation ago could still be described with some plausibility as characteristically German. We did not deprive the Nazis of Nazi thought. They deprived us of ours. (coughs) Excuse me, what thought was that? The thought that race determined thinking and thus the quality and qualification of the soul was based on race. In a sense... Thank God Strauss and others did flee Germany to come here. Strauss was, after all, Alan Bloom's and Harry Jaffa's and so many others' teacher. I wish we had that teaching again. But no, teaching today is a revolutionary activity, and as with most revolutions, the crude is what is the most important thing, not the exquisite durable known as the soul. So we don't focus on nurturing and improving that in our educational pursuits. We focus on nurturing and improving social and societal change. But social and societal change that ignores the individual or the soul. Let's just call it the human and the humane. It will end up seeing individuals as our unreconstructed antebellum Dred Scott majority did. With some having rights, others are simply not bound to respect. And some having rights, we are all bound to respect. All of it determined and based on the group they were born into. Here in the 1800s, here in the 1800s we already did that and failed. Just as in Germany in the 1900s, they did that and failed. Education, if it is anything, ought to teach the history of those ideas, but not to resurrect them as they have, but to bury them once and for all. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the great people at Y-Refi. If you're looking for a unique investment opportunity, I want you to check my friends at Y-Refi out. They are offering a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure, collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm where the investors do really well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that as well. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest the letter Y, and then refy.com, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. Lee Habib is going to join us in a few moments. He wrote a piece in Newsweek about the passing of David McCullough, someone who was a teacher to the public along the lines of what good teaching was. He understood the importance of teaching American history the right way. He understood the importance of stories. Stories were important to David McCullough, as Lee Habib puts it. You know why? Because people, stories are about people, and people are important to the telling of history. Not causes, not groups, individual people exercising, certainly sometimes in group efforts, the betterment of society, but not the betterment of society based on the group they came from, but what the group was designed to accomplish, what the group was designed to do. No one ever asked the emancipation and manumission movements what was the race of the people marching for civil rights. No one ever asked that question. They asked what was the cause of civil rights. Today, we distort the cause of civil rights 
because we're focused on the group membership of those who might be arguing for for it one way or the other. Anyway, don't go away. Lee Habib on David McCullough coming right up. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight to bring back to this show an old, long-time friend, Lee Habib. Long-time, not old, long-time friend, Lee Habib, who, uh, among other things, is the is a contributor to Newsweek and is the founder and host at Our American Stories. Uh, you can uh, check out Our American Stories easily enough at ouramericanstories.com. Wrote a wonderfully important, and I mean that, wonderfully important, beautifully important piece on the passing of David McCullough. Uh, in Newsweek magazine. Lee, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm terrific, and I am old, and uh, and thanks for having me back. You are not old. If you're old, I'm old. I'm not willing to admit that. <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk to us about our American stories and the stuff you've been up to before we get to McCullough, uh, your piece on McCullough, because what you're doing is, is tremendously helpful and fascinating. Well, you know, we started about six years ago with a, with a simple idea. Uh, what would a show sound like? if it replicated some of the stylistic uh, attributes of This American Life, the NPR show, but if the people who made it loved the country, and I mean loved it, not wanted to fundamentally transform it, but loved it. It's not a perfect country, but what would a show sound like if it reflected the decency, the virtues, and and the goodness, not even the greatness, a word I'm not crazy about, the goodness of this country. And we started six years ago with one affiliate, and last year, um, Premier syndicators, the biggest syndicator in the country, iHeart Syndicators, picked us up, and we're now one of the fastest growing shows in radio. We never do politics. We never talk about anything that's happened within the last five years. But we tell stories about American generosity, about American history, about American coverage, and our favorite thing is stories about different ethnic groups that come here, particularly folks from South America, Latin America, Africa, Asia, me from the Middle East, Habib, Lebanon, and come here and thrive, thus putting to rest the idea that America is a white supremacist nation. It's utter nonsense, <laughs> and our show is dedicated to the principle. This is a beautiful country. Thank you for doing it, Lee. It was uh, it was wonderful that you imagined this, and it's even more wonderful to see it success. You know, you said something, I just I just can't let it go, about your preference for American goodness over American greatness. I, I, are you familiar with the uh, scholar uh, Wilford Riley out of uh, Kentucky State? He had a piece recently in defense of American goodness, and I said, you know, it's a great piece. The title is interesting, because you almost want to see the phrase American greatness is so prevalent. Why did you choose American goodness? He had a great answer. I think you'll appreciate this, Lee. He said, well, you know, we think in moral terms of good and bad, not and good and evil, not in terms of bad and great or evil and great. I wanted to put it and cast it in a moral perspective, and I think that's right, isn't it? When you, I think when you talk about American goodness, it does better put it into the moral category we belong in. I, I thought that was smart. Do you agree? It is, and and, and greatness is a superlative, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and gen- I am great. Yeah. It almost reflects a sort of vanity. Yeah, and a, it doesn't. There's no value attribution to that. Good and evil. Look, and God said it was good. Yeah, and God yeah. said it was good. Exactly. He didn't say God said it was great. Right. And God was doing some pretty great stuff creating the earth. Um. So good is a better word for me than great. Yeah, and, I'm going to do it. Stems from our goodness. Uh, our good. We are great. If we're 
We're great because we're good. I, I'm going to use that. I'm going to keep going with it. I, now that uh, two of my favorite uh, scholars have, have started using that, that terminology, I'm going to go with it. Lee, let's talk about your piece in Newsweek on David McCullough. I'm so glad you did it. You know, um, 1997, Princess Diana died. And that same week, Martha, uh, Mother Teresa died. And all the attention was on Princess Diana. And I remember the great Mike Barnacle was on TV saying, well, hold on a second. As good as Princess Di was, shouldn't we be equally focused on Mother Teresa and her contribution to our culture? And I kind of felt that way with David McCullough's passing when, you know, Olivia Newton-John kind of crowded and shadowed that out. Because, yes, great actress, wonderful um, producer, inventor, even of certain modes of, of entertainment. But David McCullough was a giant, a giant in our culture, wasn't he, Lee? He was, and he wrote about gigantic things. He wrote about big things. You know, he wrote about a bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, not any bridge, right? He wrote about a canal, the Panama Canal, not any canal. He wrote about flight, and not just any flight, first man-powered flight, the Wright Brothers. He wrote about a flood, the Johnstown Flood. He also wrote about a year, but not 1619. <laughs> He wrote about 1776, the most important year possibly in human history, unless you're a Christian, and there it's the, 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 the year that Christ was uh, killed and resurrected. And, and so you're looking at these great historical moments surrounded by great, and by the way, three books on three great presidents. Yeah. You know, you've got Teddy yeah. Roosevelt, John Adams, and, and Harry Truman. Yeah. And what he was writing about, I think, was American exceptionalism, the yeah. unique attributes of America that produced these innovations and these people and these risk takers and uh he i think he was in love with his country he didn't think it was a perfect country and he didn't write about perfect people he wrote about real life human beings in the context of their cultural times he didn't judge them he didn't manipulate them he was not an blog he was a terrific storyteller and i was enamored of his books from the first to the last in 1776 if you can do one thing pick it up because the very first quote in the very first chapter is George Washington looking out into the Brooklyn Harbor. And his entry for the day in his personal journal was, few men know the predicament we're in. <laughs> That's the entry for the day. Yeah. Because he's mortified. Yeah. He sees the number of ships coming. And he's wondering, do we have what it takes to conquer this mighty British army? And, of course, he runs. Yeah. He tied, hightails it out of New York through Long Island. In, a, in, a, in the, one of the great retreats of all time, he didn't know we were going to win. He didn't know he was going to make it to the next month. There was no money. Half of three quarters of the country wasn't for the war, possibly three quarters. And, and he, he had signed his own death warrant. He and a, a bunch of revolutionaries had signed their death warrant against this mighty British empire. This is the point of view, I think, that he brings to everything. He imagines being there in that time, not knowing what the next day would bring, just like we live every day. Lee Habib is our guest. Let me take a quick commercial break. This was a short segment. We had a little bit longer one coming right up. I want to push on that and explore that just a little bit more. And if anything else, impart to you, you know, an important message as we go to break. David McCullough testified to the Senate on teaching American history. He says you can't teach what you don't know and you can't know what you don't love and the problem with american history is too many people just don't love it anymore he instantiated a love of the second greatest story ever told our history lee habib and i'll come right back on that 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm Seth. It's a delight to have Lee Habib with us, among other things, a columnist at Newsweek and the host of Our American Stories. Uh, I could go on and on about his resume, but let's uh, focus our time on his piece, his most recent piece in Newsweek on uh, the passing of David McCullough and what his life gave to us. Um, Lee, I, I did a monologue on the importance of education before you came on the show here today. And, you know, I was kind of walking people through some of Alan Bloom's teachings and the closing of the American mind and the importance of nurturing the individual and the soul. David McCullough, as a historian, understood this intuitively. And you bring this out in your Newsweek piece when you talk about well, when you quote him talking about um, teaching children things about American history that aren't themselves self-evident, particularly to young people who are trying to understand life, right? We graduate too many high school seniors that have no clue about the story of this country, and it's a tragedy. It's a growing tragedy, isn't it, Lee? Well, it is. And he, he writes in, in this speech, by the way, I focus on this speech he gave in Arizona, yeah. in Phoenix, right. to a Hillsdale College group about the importance of teaching history. He says this. He says, we have to get across the idea that we have to know who we were right. if we're to know who we are, right. let alone where we're headed. Right. This is essential. We have to value what our forebearers, and not just in the 18th century, but our own parents and grandparents did for us. And we're not going to take it very seriously. It can slip away. If you don't care about it, if you've inherited, let's say, some great work of art that is worth a fortune, and you don't know that it's worth a fortune or why. You don't even know that it's a great work of art, let's mm. say, and you're not interested in it. You will lose it. And this is the inheritance we have, right? And like many third-generation uh, inheritors of great wealth, they squander it. We've inherited this remarkable history, and yet in a generation or two, we're squandering it. And it's easy to squander things you don't care about and love. And we can blame the educators all day long, but this falls on the parents, too. We're allowed to teach what the schools don't. We're allowed to pick up a David McCullough book and read it to our kids instead of watching Netflix. Or we can watch John Adams on HBO and go, my goodness, what a man, what a life. He defended the British troops in the Boston Massacre yeah. who shot Americans but believed they deserved a defense. And this was 1770, yeah. and he was a small-town lawyer in Boston, and he put his reputation on the line because he believed in the presumption of innocence and due process for British soldiers no one liked, and it turned out they were innocent. Right. That's greatness. That's greatness. And that is great. That's not just good. That's exceptional. You bet. And once kids hear those stories, uh, what, what great history teachers did, and I'm lucky, I had a father who was a world-class history teacher, but he knew how to bring history alive. It wasn't a series of dates right. to his kids. That's he right. put them there. He would split up a class and say, you're South Carolina, you're New Jersey. It's the Constitutional Convention right now. Duke it out. And that's hard. that takes talent. And parents can do this, too. And especially of all the great materials floating around, heck, Hillsdale College's free online courses. It's never been easier to teach history to our kids and our grandchildren. So I'd implore all the listeners, we're the answer to the problem. David McCullough is a terrific source material. Buy all of his books. Read them with your kids. They won't leave your side. These are suspense yarns of the highest order. 
and they're, they're worth sharing with your family. It's a, it's a beautiful sentiment you're expressing, and it's beautiful work he produced, and it testifies to itself. You know, my complaint about American history books, Lee, up until about 10 years ago, was not that they were, uh, shall we say, tendentious, again, up till 10 years ago. It was that they made the story boring, and that's yes. the crime. That was the crime. They turned people off from what I call the second greatest story ever told. David McCullough had a way of reviving that. And you're right. The proof is in the pudding. Adults crave it. The, the, the John Adams, uh, was it HBO or Showtime? The John Adams series you were mentioning, huge success. Huge success. People want this stuff, and it's kind of a sin. It is kind of a sin that the schools have watered it down. But you're right. The solution is in our hands, and it's apprehensible to us. No doubt, and, and never more so with going to old David McCullough beaches. Yep. And going to the books themselves. And yep. better still, look, Band of Brothers and Stephen Ambrose. Right. Remarkable. Watch that with your kids. You'll learn more about World War II through the soldier and the grunt size and, and Captain and Major Dick Winters than you will through a textbook. Exactly. And then you'll want to know more about what caused the war and what, what World War I was about, led to World War II. And the next thing you know, kids are interested because those were young men. Yep. When, when a high school kid is watching Band of Brothers, he's looking at high school kids or recent high school graduates fighting real-life Nazis, having no idea what's going to happen any day, let alone next week or next month. And that, look, it's, it's, there's so much wealth and richness in, in, in content out there that's at our fingers. And what I love about what McCullough did is he preserved a legacy forever for all of us to enjoy, to dine out on, and to share with our friends and neighbors. And you've done it with our American stories. By the way, I love the first word, our. This is ours. This is ours. We own this. We should nurture it. We should love it and thus have the duty to teach it. Lee Habib, you're great, man. You're the best. You're a dear old and longtime friend, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. You betcha. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I, I guess we might call this uh, today's show uh, a show about education, which is which is an important thing, isn't it? Uh, portions of it were brought to you by Balance of Nature. Great company. Great product. I take it every single day. It keeps my energy boosted. It keeps my health boosted. It keeps my immunity boosted. Pure potent plant power. You take it just once a day, you are good to go. Balanceofnature.com. That's balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code balance. I've never taken a better product. And uh, for those of you who haven't taken it yet, I encourage you to do so. And I'll let you know this too. You won't need weeks to know if it's working. Maybe days, maybe days. I'll close with a line from David McCullough. I mentioned briefly his testimony to the United States Senate in 2005, I guess it was. And uh, he was talking about how we teach or really how we don't teach American history. He said, the teacher who doesn't know the subject is up against a big handicap in several ways. And consequently, therefore, the students are. Anybody trying to teach a subject they don't know has right away got a problem. But it is also impossible to love what you don't know, just as it is impossible to love someone you don't know. And we all know from our experience in school, those of us who were lucky enough to have wonderful teachers, the best teachers were the teachers that were really excited about what they were teaching. Their enthusiasm, their affection for the, what they were teaching was tangible, and it became our enthusiasm and our excitement about what we were learning. Go pick up a David McCullough book. 
you could do a lot worse. And you know what? If nothing else, you can say what you did for your country was teaching its great history to the next generation. Not a bad contribution. Not a bad job, that. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all, and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 